Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about an epic new Supreme Court case, new grants, and we'll interview Supreme Court all-star Canon Shamugam. The Supreme Court issued two new opinions this week, so I think they have about 30 left to go before the term is over, and both opinions were written by Justice Gorsuch. First up is Epic Systems Corporation versus Lewis, which was decided 5-4. This case involves class action suits brought by employees who claim that their employers failed to provide adequate overtime pay. The issue is whether employees may pursue class action or collective litigation against an employer when they have a contract providing for individualized arbitration. The court held that the Federal Arbitration Act requires arbitration agreements providing for individualized proceedings must be enforced. By way of background, Congress passed the Arbitration Act in 1925, saying that uh, agreements to arbitrate disputes are valid, irrevocable, and enforceable. Writing for the majority, Justice Gorsuch explained that Congress enacted the Arbitration Act in response to, quote, a perception that courts were unduly hostile to arbitration. And in instructing courts to enforce these agreements, Congress, quote, specifically directed courts to respect and enforce the party's chosen arbitration procedures. But the employees in this case argue that the National Labor Relations Act, which was passed in 1935, changed this. Now, the NLRA allows employees to work together for mutual aid and protection. Justice Gorsuch explained in his opinion that the NLRA focuses on the right to organize unions and bargain collectively. He said it does not even hint at a wish to displace the Arbitration Act, let alone accomplish that much clearly and manifestly as our precedents demand. The court's ruling in Epic Systems makes it clear that when an employment contract specifies that disputes will be resolved individually through arbitration, the employees have waived their right to collective proceedings. Justice Ginsburg dissented, writing that the majority, quote, forgets the labor market imbalance that gave rise to the NLRA and ignores the destructive consequences of diminishing the right of employees to band together in confronting an employer. She accuses the majority of trying to go back to the Lochner era of overriding legislative policy judgments and resurrecting so-called yellow dog contracts, where employees would agree not to join a union as a condition of employment. Gorsuch responded to these claims, explaining that the court does not override Congress's policy judgments. He concluded that the respective merits of class actions and private arbitration as a means of enforcing the law are questions constitutionally entrusted not to the courts to decide, but to the policymakers and the political branches where those questions remain hotly contested. Justice Ginsburg read her dissent from the bench, which I've seen a lot of people are calling this a bold and rare move. And although it doesn't happen all that often, it's it's not terribly uncommon. And we found a few notable instances throughout history that we wanted to share. So first up is a 1946 case dealing with the oath of allegiance that's required for new citizens. Apparently, a Seventh-day Adventist from Canada said he could not swear that part of the oath that, that involves taking up arms in defense of the United States. And the court ruled in favor of granting him citizenship. Chief Justice Harlan Stone read his dissent from the bench, and unfortunately, this story has kind of a sad ending because, according to some reports, Stone took ill while he was reading the dissent, and then he died later that day. I think the cause of death was dissenting too hard. (laughs) My favorite is the next one. So when the court announced the decision in the infamous Dred Scott case, Justices John McLean and Benjamin Curtis spent five hours on the bench criticizing Chief Justice Taney's majority opinion. 
That would have been something to see. Five hours. Definitely. I mean, imagine the SCOTUS blog, you know, live blog during <laughs> during that period in, in this day and age. <laughs> That's great. And then uh, another case in the, the gold clause cases where the court upheld FDR's restrictions on the ownership of gold, Justice McReynolds read his dissent from the bench. And then apparently he was so worked up that he flung his papers to the floor and proclaimed that the government's actions embodied Roman Emperor Nero in his worst form and that the Constitution is gone. Uh, I'd say this is a bit more dramatic than Justice Ginsburg and her dissenting Jabot, uh, but pretty entertaining nonetheless. Yeah, although that's another interesting point about how this isn't, you know, really rare. She has a dissenting Jabot, like specifically for this purpose. Yeah, and I read somewhere that now retired Justice John Paul Stevens, he read his dissenting opinions from the bench, something like 20 times over the course of his career. And I'm not sure how long he was on the court. That would probably work out to be less than once a term. So it's not, you know, in every case, not every time there's a dissent, but it's not terribly rare. And also a shout out to our intern, Scott French, uh, for, for finding these examples for us. Thanks, Scott. So the second opinion the court decided this week was Upper Skagit Indian Tribe versus Lundgren. So the relationships among the federal government, the states, and Indian tribes often give rise to various jurisdictional conflicts, which the Supreme Court then um, needs to mediate. So this case involved the question of whether an Indian tribe can invoke sovereign immunity when a private party landowner brings a quiet title action in state court. So the case turned on the issue of statutory interpretation, and it's very, very boring, and I'm not going to go into it. (laughs) It's like when you read something that's so boring and you can't even concentrate on it, Mm -hmm. that's this opinion. But the court, what's important is the court did not decide whether a tribe can ultimately assert tribal sovereign immunity because this was an alternative argument in the case and it was presented pretty late in the game. So the court said that the state court should address it in the first instance. So I assume it will be back up at some point. We'll keep our eyes. Maybe it will be interesting then. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. The court also granted review in four cases. First is Virginia Uranium Incorporation versus Warren, which is about whether the Atomic Energy Act preempts a Virginia law banning uranium mining. So I'm excited about this case because Chuck Cooper is the lawyer for the Virginia Uranium Company here. And I think we definitely need to have him or somebody from his team uh, come to SCOTUS 101 if for no other reason than to talk about the broadswords that yes. Chuck gives to all of his new partners. Um, and I think they have an inscription on them. Yeah, we've like, talked about it before. Is it like victory or death? Something, or something like that. that. It's a pretty, Which pretty a hardcore. Yeah, it's a hardcore motto, but one that one that we appreciate here at SCOTUS 101. Um, the second case is Culbertson versus Berryhill which is about whether a fees cap in federal law related to the representation of individuals claiming Social Security benefits includes only fees for representation in court or also fees for representation before the agency. This case um, was brought by the UVA Supreme Court Law Clinic. Um, And then there's JAM versus International Finance Corporation, looking at whether international organizations have immunity from lawsuits similar to foreign governments' immunity under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. And this one was brought by the Stanford Law Clinic, which is interesting. Way Lots to go, of Law Supreme Court clinics. Yeah, there yeah. are quite a few of them out there. So way to go, guys. And finally, we have Royal versus Murphy, which is whether the 1866 territorial boundaries of the Creek Nation within the former Indian Territory of Eastern Oklahoma constitute an Indian reservation under today's law. Um, and this is Lisa Blatt's case, friend of the podcast. 
We love Lisa Blatt. Well, we recently spoke with Canon Chanmigam. We're pleased to have Canon Chanmigam with us today. He's a partner at Williams and Connolly and previously served as an assistant to the Solicitor General. Welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thanks. It's great to be here. So let's start with your early legal career. After law school, you clerked for Judge Mike Ludick on the Fourth Circuit. So tell us a little bit about that experience and what you learned from him. Well, I was really fortunate to have two great clerkships, first for Judge Ludig and then for Justice Scalia uh, at the Supreme Court. And uh, clerking for Judge Ludig was just a complete pleasure. You know, when I clerked for him, he was only 44 years old, um, but he had already served um, for seven years on the Fourth Circuit. Uh, when I first met him, I actually thought he was one of the clerks because he looked so young. <laughs> and uh, it, it was really a great experience. He really prided himself on his close personal relationships with his clerks. And, you know, we would go over to his house. We'd go out to lunch at Fuddruckers all the time. Um, <laughs> I ate more mushroom burgers during that year than I think I have in the rest of my life put together. And um, and it was just a great experience. Um, he really prided himself as well on preparing his clerks for Supreme Court clerkships. You know, I think all but two of his law clerks went on to the Supreme Court. Um, one of those two was Chris Ray, and everything turned out okay for him too. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, Judge Ludig really um, uh, viewed his year, I think, as sort of getting his law clerks ready for the court. And we would um, really, uh, you know, draft opinions uh, 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 in much the same way that I think Supreme Court justices would. I think Judge Ludig's view was that uh, the goal in opinion writing was to you know, identify the major legal issue, the major problem with the case, and really wrestle it to the ground. And that was very much his philosophy and opinion writing. And I learned a lot about um, how to go about um, just writing for the law more generally during that year, uh, both in helping him to draft opinions and in writing bench memos and the like. So it was really a wonderful experience. So as you mentioned, then you went on to clerk for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. We've spoken with uh, a couple of former Scalia clerks about their time as well. So what really stood out for you during your year with Justice Scalia? Well, I think it's often been said, Elizabeth, that uh, Justice Scalia ran his chambers in much the same way that he conducted himself at oral argument. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> uh, he really encouraged debate. I think he really wanted his law clerks to argue with him. And we would have these wonderful um, debates and discussions in chambers about cases and, you know, if anything, it was often the sort of less high-profile cases where we would have the most vigorous back-and-forth debates, um, often on cases involving fairly obscure issues of statutory interpretation, <laughs> cases that even for a textualist might be close cases. We would have these extended discussions. And, you know, while Justice Scalia was someone who knew his own mind, he was certainly open to discussion and open to changing his mind. And I remember at least one case during the year where in the course of the discussions and then actually after the court conference the case, the justice actually changed his mind about which way he was going to vote. And I think that reflected that, you know, to Justice Scalia, ideas were important. And if he felt that uh, on reflection, um, the other side had a better view, he was not afraid to recognize that. Do you have a, a favorite Scalia opinion, whether it's a dissent or a concurrence? You know, uh, that's a hard question to answer because he was just such a consistently brilliant writer. Yeah. Um, the thing about Justice Scalia was that he could be brilliant even in the less high-profile cases. <laughs> um, 
you know, I remember one opinion that I uh, was fortunate enough to work on um, in a case called uh, Walmart versus Samara, which was a case involving a question of trademark law. And in the end, Justice Scalia wrote the opinion for the court, and it was a unanimous opinion, and it was a relatively short opinion, but it was just sort of vintage Scalia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Justice Scalia would have his law clerks do the first drafts of most of the opinions. But the thing about Justice Scalia is that by the end of the back and forth process, the opinions always sounded like Justice Scalia. You Mm -hmm. know, he was really uh, uh, brilliant, really unmatched in uh, uh, getting written work to sound in his own voice. And and that was really a, a, a rare quality. Is there something you could tell us about the justice that our listeners may not know about him? Well, I think one of the great stories uh, from his biography, and this is actually captured in Joan Biskupic's book on Justice Scalia, is the fact that although he went on to have this legendary career, you know, he had some professional disappointments along the way. And I think actually the biggest one was in 1981 when he um, uh, applied for and was passed over for the position of Solicitor General at the beginning of the Reagan administration the job went to Rex Lee, who at the time was relatively less well-known, though, of course, he went on to uh, really distinguish himself both as Solicitor General and then in private practice. And I think for Justice Scalia at the time, uh, it was really a pretty crushing professional disappointment. Um, the irony of that is that a year later, he was appointed to the D.C. Circuit, and Justice <laughs> Scalia uh, uh, often said that if uh, uh, his career had gone in the other direction and he had become Solicitor General, he might never have ended up on the Supreme Court because of uh, some of the positions that uh, uh, he might have had to take as Solicitor General. And so, uh, you know, I think everything uh, worked out pretty well for him in the end. <laughs> yeah. but, but I know from talking to him and from hearing him talk in public that that was actually a, 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 a very significant disappointment. In fact, Joan reports in her book that Mrs. Scalia was so uh, disappointed at the news that she actually cried because they were then uh, uh, in Chicago and allegedly uh, Mrs. Scalia really wanted to move out of Chicago. She <laughs> thought it was too cold. And uh, uh, and so, you know, I do think that that, that reflects the fact that even the most successful uh, lawyers and judges uh, sometimes have setbacks along the way. That's refreshing to hear. So after your clerkships, you worked for Ken Starr at Kirkland and Ellis. He had been a judge, solicitor general, and he's probably best known for being independent counsel during the Clinton administration. What is the most important thing you learned from working for him? Well, Judge Starr was just a, a great role model, both personally and professionally. And I've really been blessed, I think, to have had a series of um, great role models along the way. But uh, you know, I think Ken was really second to none in that regard. And the one quality that you know I've tried to kind of pick up from uh, uh, Ken over the years is that he really, like Ted Olson, my, my next boss, was great at sort of um, sharing the glory, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, it was never all about him. Uh, he always wanted to make sure that whenever we won a case that the associates who worked on the case got uh, uh, the credit. And um, and that was a wonderful sort of self-effacing quality that Ken had. And again, it's something that I've really tried to kind of model now that I'm uh, uh, running my own practice as a partner in private practice. That's wonderful. So then next you went to work in the Solicitor General's office for four years. So you were hired by Ted Olson and you served under Paul Clement and Greg Garr. So the great bosses just uh, keep on coming. Uh, what was that experience like? 
Well, it was great. I know you've talked to other people who served in the Solicitor General's office, and there's something just very special about having the the privilege of of serving your country and representing the United States in the Supreme Court. I think that's common uh, across Solicitors General and Solicitor General's uh, uh, offices, um, regardless of, of, of who the boss is. And, and I was fortunate, again, to have uh, uh, three wonderful SGs that I served under, though. I served under Ted Olson for all of two weeks. He hired me <laughs> and promptly left. I hope there was no cause and effect relationship there. But, um, uh, but I did have the chance to, to uh, uh, work with Paul and, and Greg, as you say, as well. And um, it's just a, a, it, I, I was really fortunate to get hired there. I really th- view that as sort of the, the big lucky break in my career uh, to be hired into the office. You know, I was relatively young. When I started there, I think I was 31 years old, and I was hired uh, in, in part because at the time, in the summer of 2004, as it then was, there were six vacancies in the Solicitor General's wow. office, which was really an extraordinary number. And so they needed people, mm-hmm. and I think I never would have been hired at that earliest stage of my career if they had only had one or two vacancies. And so uh, it was great. It was uh, a, a real privilege, as I said, and you know, a great opportunity to get experience at an early stage of my career. So now you've argued 23 cases at the Supreme Court. Is that right? Uh, yes, I think that's right. So which were the most memorable? Well, Elizabeth, I, you know, I'm proud of, uh, uh, of saying that from my perspective, you know, my cases are uh, are kind of like my children. I love them all <laughs> equally. Um, but, I, you know, I think the argument that was most memorable was probably the argument in Maryland versus King, the mm-hmm. um, case on the constitutionality of DNA collection and testing from arrestees. Um, and uh, uh, that case was now a few years ago. But it was a case that, you know, felt like a really significant case involving the application of the Fourth Amendment to emerging technologies. And in the course of my argument before the court, uh, there was one point at which Justice Alito uh, was asking me a question, and he stopped in the middle of the question and said, you know, I think this may be the most important criminal procedure case that the court has heard in decades. And it was just sort of one of those moments where, uh, you know, I think you sort of stop and realize that you're participating in, uh, you know, this really uh, uh, significant process where the court is deciding uh, a landmark case Mm -hmm. and you have a real sort of appreciation for and a real humility for your role in that process. Um, So that was definitely, you know, a moment that um, was sort of one of those, boy, I was there moments uh, during a Supreme Court argument. Mm -hmm. And what was it like appearing before your your former boss, Justice Scalia? Well, it was great. Um, I think that it's always intimidating when you're arguing in front of, you know, a judge or a justice for whom you clerked because you certainly don't want to let them down. I think it's fair to say that Justice Scalia was not any nicer to his former clerks than he was to <laughs> anyone else. And As often, you'd expect. Yeah, I think in many ways it was perhaps easier for him to be harder on his former clerks. Um, and I certainly had some uh, encounters with him where he did not um, particularly care for what I was selling, um, but uh, but it was a it, it, it was a, a great honor and very special to have the chance to argue in front of him. And I think in many ways it really hasn't ever felt the same uh, since uh, since he passed away. Mm-hmm. I think I've now had um, I want I want to say four or five arguments since he passed away, and 
and, and I'm sure that it will there will be a time at which his absence is no longer felt. But now, you know, more than um, I, I guess now two years on, it still feels as if um, during an argument you almost expect to hear that baritone voice yeah. piping in at any time. Yeah. So, do you have any pre-argument rituals? So I don't have any um, superstitions. I do have one <laughs> pre-argument ritual, which is kind of a strange one, which is that the weekend before a Supreme Court argument, I always go right next door to here to Union Station and I get my shoes shined. Um, and I don't do that for like lower court arguments. I only do that for Supreme Court arguments. And <laughs> But that's actually a bit of a, a, a pre-Supreme Court ritual because it goes back to when uh, I worked as an intern for um, another great role model, really the the plus ultra of role models, um, uh, Bob Dole, who was my senator, uh, and I worked for him for a summer on Capitol Hill, and uh, and I would always go to that same shoe shine stand on Monday mornings uh, <laughs> before I walked over to the Russell Building uh, uh, to Senator Dole's office, and so uh, I still uh, uh, bring my shoes to Union Station every. Uh, Every Saturday before an argument, that's the one ritual I have. <laughs> I, I don't eat anything special or anything like Four that. Four bananas or salmon? No, or I don't really do bananas or salmon. I just and you don't whatever's. have any pump up music you listen to. <laughs> uh, you know, I usually put some music on on my iPhone, but it's uh, I, I don't have like a special mm-hmm. Supreme Court playlist. <laughs> Uh, so when you were in the SG's office, I read that Lisa Blatt was your office neighbor, and um, we're big fans of her here at SCOTUS 101. She joined us for an interview uh, this past winter. So I imagine you must have some funny stories from from working with Lisa. Unfortunately, I think all of them are privileged. So. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Lisa was my next-door neighbor at the SG's office, and she is uh, just a complete trip. I mean, she's such a wonderful person as well as a great advocate. And uh, 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 she's a great person to have next door because she is always uh, sort of upbeat and uh, just kind of a, 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 a wonderful human being. Mm-hmm. And she was one of the people who, when I was in the SG's office, was really, you know, sort of part of the, the social glue of the office, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, and Lisa is really indirectly responsible for my being where I am now, because it was really through Lisa that I met um, uh, David Blatt, Lisa's husband, who mm-hmm. is now one of my partners. And it was really David who first suggested to me uh, the possibility of joining Williams and Connolly and uh, leading the firm's appellate practice. Um, and uh, and so I sort of have Lisa to thank for that as well. <laughs> That's wonderful. So I think it's safe to say you've reached the top of your craft at this point. In fact, I read that Law 360 has named you the Legal Lion of the Week six times in the last year, which is pretty impressive. Uh, so how do you continue to challenge yourself at this point in your career? Well, it's kind of you to say that I've reached um, the top <laughs> of my craft, but it really doesn't feel that way to me. I mean, in some sense, even though it's now been 10 years since I joined Williams and Connolly, I still feel as if we're kind of the the upstarts in the Supreme Court bar and in Supreme Court practice. And I think that's very much the the mentality that I like to bring to every case. Um, this is really a line of work in which you can't rest on your laurels. Mm-hmm. I always say to our associates that, you know, you're only as good as your last argument or your last <laughs> brief. And I think that there's actually a lot of truth to that. And so, you know, to me, it isn't a, a, a competition. I mean, we don't 
uh, go out there, you know, striving to be, you know, the best um, Supreme Court practice. There are so many great Supreme Court and appellate practices out there. Uh, I, I think I go out with the mentality of just wanting to kind of do the best work that I can on every case. And uh, I think uh, uh, once you stop thinking that way, maybe it's time to to, to hang it up. And I'd never be, want to be one of those lawyers about whom people say, you know, he was better five years ago. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, I think that's sort of the ultimate criticism. And so, uh, you know, we uh, 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 I work very hard every day to to kind of try to get better. Uh, I think you can always get better, particularly as an oral advocate. I love listening to other great oral advocates, and often you can learn things from them, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, no matter at what stage of your career you're at. And, um, uh, uh, you know, and I very much approach work every day with that mentality. Mm-hmm. So one final question that we ask everybody at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Oh, that's a that's a hard question because, of course, I think all of us would love to to talk to you know all of them um, <laughs> on some level. But I think I would probably actually love to sit down again with Justice Scalia. I mean, barely a day goes by when I don't think about him. And mm-hmm. you know, as I said earlier, it's now been um, two years, and you know, a lot has happened in those two years. Uh, uh, we've had a baby, and and there have been a lot of developments and in my life. And of course, I would absolutely love to hear what Justice Scalia thinks about the current political environment. Oh my um, gosh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I I really do miss him and it would be great to have the chance to talk to him again and and, and convey to him some sense of how much appreciation I have for, for how he shaped my career. So I think that would be my answer. Mm-hmm. That would be a great opportunity. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Cannon. It's my pleasure. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Memorial Day edition, and I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. Are you ready? Let's go. First question. Memorial Day signals the official start of summer, which means pools across America have their opening day. Speaking of pools, how many current members of the Supreme Court opt out of the clerk's cert pool? Oh, I know this one. Uh, Two, Gorsuch and Alito. Yes. Very different type of pool. <laughs> yes. That was a <laughs> Next quite question. A lead in, Elizabeth. Several of the Supreme Court's landmark civil rights cases involved this type of establishment, which is often a mainstay at Memorial Day celebrations. Oh, barbecue, obviously. Man, these are too easy. There's but can Ollie's. You... Yes. Do you and... know the case name, though? Yeah, this is Kat- Katzen... Katzenbach. Yeah. Versus McClung, I think. That is right. Because it was Ollie McClung's mm-hmm. And there's another. Do you know bar- the other one? <sighs> Something about a pig. Piggy? Yes. Piggy Park. Yes. yes. Piggy Park. Piggy Park. Good I, job. I don't think I know the case name for that one. Newman versus Piggy Park. Okay. So. Third question. On Memorial Day, people often place flags on the graves of those who died while serving our country. When the Supreme Court ruled that the First Amendment protects the right to burn the American flag in protest— who were the dissenting justices? And I can give you some hints if that would be helpful. Yeah, I don't know. I know Scalia was in the majority. He might have even written the opinion. He did I, not write it, but he was in the majority. Okay. There were three dissenters. They I, were all men, and none of them are on the court today. Oh, okay. I, I don't even know what year this is. Rehnquist? Like 80, yeah, it was it's, late 80s. Okay, Rehnquist? That's correct. 
Um, white. Yes. Really? I'm just guessing. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of who else is on the court. And was I may or may not have mentioned this justice already in the episode. Um, don't look through the show notes. <laughs> look at the notes. <laughs> That's I cheating. Don't know. <laughs> it was John Paul no Stevens. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that. Fourth question. The poppy flower is a symbol of Memorial Day. And in fact, there is a temporary installation on the National Mall with more than 645,000 poppies to represent service members who have lost their lives in service to our country. Another poppy, Poppy Harlow <laughs> of CNN, interviewed Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at their alma mater earlier this year. What is that school? Is this VMI? Because I thought I remembered that from the no, documentary. Ginsburg didn't go to VMI. No, I thought someone interviewed her. Oh, you mean where Ginsburg went to school? Poppy Harlow of CNN and Ginsburg went to this school. Law school? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, she, she went to, uh, well, she started at Harvard and then transferred to Columbia. Okay. Well, it's the one that she graduated from. Oh, okay. Then Columbia. Okay. Well, I think you did a pretty good job, almost 100% <laughs> with a little bit of help there. Yes. But thanks for being a good sport. <laughs> and thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.